0: i asked you to turn to Galatians chapter 2. This is going to be a different kind of message, not really exegetical, but kind of maybe historical, topical, uh, because um, October 31st is not only the extremely important holiday of Halloween, and I'm speaking facetiously when I say that, believe me. It is the one holiday that America seems to love to celebrate because it doesn't offend anyone. Except Christians, I guess, if you really think about it. Uh, But actually, there's a better reason to celebrate October the 31st, because that is the 500th on the day, October 31st, 500 years to the day when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg. 500 years to the day. So I'll be thinking about that. And, uh, you know, maybe eating some good candy, too. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not opposed to the candy part of Halloween. But before we go any further, let's ask the Lord to help us. We need his help. I need his help. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. This is the day that you have made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Because here we are in the land of the living having been given the gift of life and the gift of new life in Christ, to witness to You, our wonderful Father, Jesus, Son of God and Holy Spirit. O Lord, strengthen and encourage us. We have gathered together today for the purpose of giving glory and praise to You and being edified Lord, we need to be built up. We need to be strengthened. We need your help. We need the help of your spirit today through your word. And so, Lord, as we open the word and as we consider what you have done for our fathers in days past, may we gain strength and a heart of wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, this month uh, marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, a couple of months ago, um, North America experienced an eclipse of the sun. And for those who were living in parts of our continent where the eclipse was total, I'm told the effect was amazing. Uh, the sky darkened and... Uh, Birds and other animals froze in their tracks. Uh, Everyone and everything knew that something was not right. And that something, of course, was the sun. The sun. Something we all take for granted. The sun disappeared from view in the middle of the day. Did it cease to exist? No, But it was covered up. Well, spiritually, that was just the situation in Europe in the early 16th century, that is the early 1500s. The gospel had gone into eclipse. It it was there, but it had been so covered over by religious traditions that had built up gradually over the centuries that it could not be seen. The gospel, that good news of forgiveness and salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, was blocked so that it could not benefit sinners. Now Jesus, hundreds of years before, had said to the Pharisees, those were the religious leaders in his day, he said to them, for the sake of your traditions, you have made void The Word of God. You've emptied the Word of God of its power through your vain human traditions. You've rendered it of none effect. In about 25 years after Jesus said that, the Apostle Paul was writing to the Christians in Galatia, that is present-day Turkey, and we have that in verse 16. I've asked you to open your Bibles there. And Paul writes in just this one verse, he says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now here, Paul is contrasting two things. He's contrasting works of the law on the one hand with faith in Jesus Christ on the other. And in the short space of this one verse, he actually says the same thing three times. You can't be justified by the works of the law. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Not by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. He says it again and again three times in just one verse. Now, when he says we're not justified by works of the law. Works of the law have to do with the basis upon which God accepts us. And the wrong thinking is that on the basis of works of the law, keeping the Ten Commandments, being kind to my neighbor, giving to the poor, reading my Bible, going to church on Sunday, keeping the Sabbath, whatever you want, those works of the law, oh, that's the basis upon which God saves me. No, no, it's not. The basis upon which God accepts us and the basis upon which we enter into life and into heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not by the works of the law. See, that idea that a person becomes acceptable to God by doing religious works, that undercuts the gospel. And if you build on that kind of a mentality, that kind of an idea... It becomes like the sediment in a pipe that builds up over time so that the water can't get through. Or it's like an eclipse of the sun. It prevents the light and the warmth of the sun from reaching us. Well, the glorious gospel, the glorious gospel of grace had been so covered over by the unbiblical practices and traditions of the Roman Catholic Church at that time That the gospel had gone into eclipse. And there was one particular practice that touched off a chain of events. And it is why we mark October of 1517 as the beginning of the Reformation. And that practice, some of you will know, was the sale of indulgences. The sale of indulgences. What was that all about? Well, people were taught by the church at that time that when you died, you didn't go directly to heaven. No, you went to a place called purgatory where you were purified or purged from your remaining sins. Yeah, in an ultimate sort of sense, Christ died to save you from guilt, but depending on how much you had sinned in this life, You had to spend more or less time in purgatory to be purified so that you could then enter heaven. And according to church authorities, purgatory had purgatorial fires, purging flames that were there to cleanse you of your sin. It was painful, it was unpleasant, and it could go on for a very, very long time. But one way to lessen the pains of purgatory and to reduce your time in purgatory was through something called indulgences. Now, an indulgence was just a way to reduce the amount of punishment a soul would endure in purgatory. Mainly consisted of prayers. You could do them while you were still alive. Pray and pray and pray. It could reduce the time that you'd have to spend in purgatory. At some point, these indulgences came to be offered for sale. And, of course, you can see how this could just invite all kinds of abuse. The sale of religious indulgences. Well, one man in particular at this time, he was a Dominican friar by the name of Johann Tetzel. And Tetzel received special approval from the Pope, a special dispensation to sell indulgences in Germany. And actually, from the sale of indulgences at that time, funds were raised in order to erect the great St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Well, Tetzel was very creative and he was very showman-like. And he would go around and he would preach sermons and they were meant to encourage people to buy indulgences. And he would paint with fiery colors the pains that souls were enduring right at that very moment in purgatory. And he would speak very passionately about your dead mother who is at this moment suffering. And you could reduce her suffering. You could lessen it by simply buying indulgences. He even had a jingle that went along with his patter. It was, as as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul From Purgatory Springs. He was the ultimate religious huckster. And he was so crass and so zealous. But there was one man who was so annoyed and so extremely offended by this that he felt he had to do something. And of course, that was a little monk named Martin Luther. Luther felt he had to do something, but he didn't have a Twitter account and he couldn't post on Facebook. So he did the next best thing. And on October the 31st, 1517, he went up to the door at the cathedral church at Wittenberg and he nailed there 95 theses. Now, he was a university professor at the time, and these were points for academic debate. Nailing them to the cathedral door was like posting them on the bulletin board of the faculty lounge. It was just the practice. It's what you did when you wanted to initiate a debate. Luther was not an activist looking for a fight. He was an academic looking for a discussion. Furthermore, he wrote these theses in Latin, the language of learning. Uh, He wasn't trying to start a fight. He was trying to start a discussion. He said, this is wrong. This is an abuse. And we've got to talk about it. Well, it turned out that that was the match that lit the fire that we now call the Protestant Reformation, although nobody knew that at the time, because other people wrote down his theses, translated them into German. They spread like wildfire. They went, as we would say, viral throughout Germany and beyond. And they were all the talk. Now, as I said, the presenting issue here was the sale of indulgences. And Luther was contesting the abuse of indulgences. At this time, he wasn't even arguing against indulgences, just against their abuse. But you see, there was a bigger issue Uh, There were a lot of corrupt practices going on in the Roman Catholic Church at this time, but there was a bigger issue that lay beneath it all, a deeper problem lurking beneath the surface, and that was the very basic question of how a person may become right with God. Now, that was an important question then. It's an important question now, It's actually the most important question there is. How can I be right with God? Or how can I be accepted by God? Or how can I be okay with God? And you may have asked that question yourself. I'm sure you have in some form or another. It's like, God, am I okay with you? I mean, that is, that's just a basic question. You know, just the other day, my wife asked me, she said, are we okay? Okay. And why did she ask that? Because she was picking something up in my attitude. And so it led to a discussion. I said, yeah, yeah, we're okay. This is what I'm dealing with. Well, she asked the question because it's important in terms of relationship. I've asked that question of her many times, too. You see, our relationship as a married couple is our right relationship, our being okay with one another, it's fundamental to our well-being as individuals. If I'm not okay with Clara, i i got to get that straightened out. And she feels the same way because that's the basic human relationship, right? Well, what about your relationship with God? Same thing. If you're not okay with God, that's a big problem. And that was the issue that was underlying everything that came out during the Protestant Reformation. Okay, well, what about your relationship with God? Think about it for a moment. Am I okay with you, God? And how may I become okay with you? How does a person become okay with God? How does a person become right with God? Or to use the more precise biblical language, how... May I be justified before God? Because that's what we're talking about. Justification. That is the fundamental issue that underlay the Protestant Reformation. And it is the fundamental question that every person must deal with. Justification. How may I become right with God? How is a person justified before God? So today I'd like to just take you back a few hundred years to a fascinating period in history, to the early 16th century, to the early 1500s. It's absolutely critical for us to understand what happened then. So we can understand what's happening now because, my friends, I tell you with all seriousness, the gospel, again, indeed, is in danger of going into eclipse and for the same reasons, not necessarily the sale of indulgences, but similar things. And so this morning I'd like to briefly talk to you about this period in church history. First of all, we'll talk about the times and then the man and then thirdly, The teaching or the doctrine, first of all, the times, the early 1500s, that's the late Middle Ages, the modern era had not quite dawned. The printing press had been invented just a few years before this, but there were few books and there were few who could read Um, and books were owned only by the wealthy uh, one of my favorite quotes is from a scholar of the era, the premier scholar, a man named Erasmus. He said, when I get a little money, I buy books. And if there's anything left over, I buy food and clothing. I like that. I like it anyway. I thought it was, thought it was kind of funny. Anyway, because um, I, I do the same thing. I, you know, I, I'm just I'm a bookie. Oh, if I get a little money, I buy books. Well, Anyway. A renaissance had been going on in Italy, but in Germany, hmm, that's where Luther lived. It was still pretty much the Dark Ages. Germany at this time was a cultural backwater, and Luther lived in a world that was lit only by fire, to use William Manchester's phrase. Uh, we freak out when the power goes out. We have no power, but for these people, the power was always out. When it got dark, you went to bed. If you had some means, you lit a candle. But mostly, it was dark. And people lived hand to mouth. It was an agrarian culture. And if there was drought, you starved. If there was rain, you ate. When the plague came through, you died. In Hobbes' phrase, life was nasty, brutish, And short, the grim reaper stalked the earth. If you lived into your 50s, you were unusually ancient. Therefore, people were aware of their mortality. They knew they could die at any moment. And so thoughts about God, thoughts about heaven, thoughts about hell were constantly before them. They had, therefore, an eternal Perspective. They were forced to have an eternal perspective. It's different for us. We can fool ourselves into thinking we're going to live forever. We don't think about death at all. But not with these people at this particular time. Okay, that's a little bit about the time. Well, what about the man? Of course, the name that we associate most with the Protestant Reformation is Martin Luther. To be distinguished, by the way, from Martin Luther King, Jr., uh, one was just recent in history, the other is 500 years ago. One was black, one was white, one was American, one was German. Two totally different people. As a matter of fact, I think Martin Luther King Jr. got his name from Martin Luther. What do you think? The reason for that is because Luther was a great man. Luther was a great man. But physically speaking, he wasn't great. He was short, sturdy, but short. He was from a peasant family, although over time his father became a man of some means. But Luther himself was exceptionally intelligent, a very hard worker. He had little trouble succeeding as a student. His father set him in a course of study where he could become a lawyer because that was the most profitable way to leverage his abilities and the best way to provide for hans and his wife in their old age Uh, so martin luther was a sharp guy he was going well in his studies he earned ba and ma degrees by the time he was 22 but a couple of things happened around that time that rocked his world Uh, first thing happened was a very close friend of his died and then right on the heels of that when he was returning to the university on a hot summer day a thunderstorm broke overhead and a bolt of lightning either hit him or landed so close it knocked him down and scared the you-know-what out of him. And so Luther, so terrified, on the spot, vowed to give himself to a religious life, to enter a monastery, to become a monk, and two weeks later he made good his vow and entered the Augustinian monastery at Erfurt. Now, joining a monastery was the way that you really dedicated yourself to really being a Christian. Luther was, uh, he was quite a character, Uh, as I said, one of the most significant figures in all history and certainly a giant in the history of the church. Uh, But he was very human. He was very flawed in many ways. Uh, I wish we had time to go into greater depth about him because he really is fascinating. But I'm going to limit my comments about Luther the man to just uh, two things. First of all, he was uncommonly aware. Uncommonly aware and observant. Uh, he was aware of the brevity of life, of the nearness of death. He was very aware of the holiness of God. And he was very aware of his own sinfulness. Besides being uncommonly aware, he was also uncommonly conscientious. So when he decided to become a monk and enter a monastery in 1505, he chose an Augustinian monastery because they were the most disciplined, they were the most austere, they were the most rigorous, they were the most serious, and that's what Luther wanted. He wasn't playing games. He was completely committed to do all that the church and all that his order taught so that he could make sure his salvation. And Luther was so aware of his own sin, that in spite of his conscientiousness, he was always tormented by the question of whether he had done enough. So he had this problem. He called it in later years Anfektungen, a German word that just meant this kind of dismal cloud of doubt and misery and despair that, was always over his. It was like there was a little storm cloud always over his head, with lightning and rain and darkness. And it, he just lived with this. He always had this question: Have I fasted enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I done enough good works to be accepted by God? But in spite of his great conscientiousness, he had no relief. He had no peace, and he walked around with this cloud of guilt. In later years, he wrote, he said, I was a good monk and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, I was that monk. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading and other work. One of the means that the church extended to comfort the conscience was the sacrament of penance. And this involved the confession of one's sins to a priest. So Luther wanted to avail himself of this mercy. He would confess frequently, often daily, and sometimes for six hours at a time. His uh, biographer Roland Bainton wrote, and this is the classic biography here, I Stand by Bainton, He writes, every sin in order to be absolved was to be confessed. Therefore, the soul must be searched and the memory ransacked and the motives probed. As an aid, the penitent ran through the seven deadly sins and the Ten Commandments. Luther would repeat a confession and then, to be sure of including everything, would review his entire life until the confessor grew weary and exclaimed, Man, God is not angry with you. You're angry with God. Don't you know God commands you to hope? Look here, he said, if you expect Christ to, c- to forgive you, come in here with something to forgive. Murder, blasphemy, adultery. Instead of all these peccadilloes, these little sins. So you can see Luther was conscientious. He was aware. And he soldiered on somehow in turmoil like this year after year. But he did learn something through all of this. He learned that the problem he had was greater than any individual sin he may have committed, he realized and came to realize that he himself was the problem, that he himself as an entire man was in need of forgiveness, not just a sin here or there. And then in 1511, a few years later, Luther's mentor at the monastery stunned him by suggesting that he should prepare himself for the ministry of preaching. Luther was amazed at this suggestion. He thought himself to be entirely unfit to do anything so serious. But he took up the challenge and he did it. And it proved to be very significant for him because it meant that he would have to study the Bible. Imagine that. Well, up until this point, Luther knew next to nothing about the Bible. He hadn't even seen a Bible until he was 20 years old. And that was the big one that was chained to the lectern in the cathedral. He didn't know anything about the Bible. You know, I can relate to this. I, I never knew anything about the Bible until someone gave me one on my 21st birthday. I didn't know anything about the Bible. And yet I said I was interested in knowing about God. But God tells us about himself in the Bible. And people today say, oh, I want to know about God, of course. Well, he's told us about himself in the Bible, but you know, that's the last place people look. Isn't that crazy? But Luther, in order to get a degree in theology, to be able to preach, had to study the Bible. And with his characteristic conscientiousness, he studied diligently and received a degree in theology. And then in 1513... He began preaching from the Psalms, 1515, the book of Romans, and 1517, the book of Galatians. Very significant. And I can tell you from personal experience, when you are charged to preach and teach the Bible to others, you will encounter God in a profound way. And the effect of all of this, this study and this preaching was to bring Luther face to face with the holy God he so feared and whose judgment he so dreaded. But it was out of his study of Scripture that Luther made his greatest discovery. D. James Kennedy describes it like this. What is it that Luther discovered what is the essence of Protestantism, of Christianity? What is it that makes Christianity different from every other religion on the face of the earth? What is it that Luther discovered and of course that Christ and the Apostles brought to light through the Gospel? It is this, that righteousness, that is justification, is not man's gift to God. It is God's gift to man. Righteousness is not Man's gift to God. See God? See all I've done? Will you not accept me? No, no, no. You've got it backwards. Righteousness, justification is God's gift to man. It cannot be any other way. Luther discovered or uncovered a gospel that had been covered over by religious tradition And he found the message of the apostles, the good news of Jesus Christ, and he found it in the Bible. He somehow got behind the moon and discovered the sun. That's the times, the man. What about the teaching? What is this teaching? Well, to set it up, let me say this. Some have studied the life of Luther and especially his awareness of his guilt and have come to the conclusion that Luther was just nuts. He was mentally unstable. And they've tried to psychoanalyze him from centuries later and they've come to the conclusion that he was way too, he he was way too into this guilt guilt thing. Uh, American philosopher Alan Bloom in his uh, book, The Closing of the American Mind, uh, said that um, psychology is the sworn enemy of guilt psychology is the sworn enemy of guilt I mean isn't that really the way it is in our culture if you say I feel guilty or something like oh you shouldn't feel guilty you know I have a family member that says I said feel so guilty when oh everybody oh you shouldn't feel guilty well wait a minute wait a minute maybe you should (laughs) I remember I was talking with my cousin A sweet Jewish lady from Brooklyn. Years ago, we were talking not about anything religious or spiritual at all. And all of a sudden, she just out of the blue, just broke in and she said, why do I feel so guilty? I mean, I was so taken aback by her question that I can't even remember how I responded. But if I had thought about it, now having thought about it, if she asked me again, I'd say, well, maybe it's because you are. Not only that, I am We all are. Guilt is the problem. See, Luther was aware of his guilt because he was aware of the holiness of God. Why do I feel so guilty? Because I am. And whether we feel it or not, by the way, some people feel guilty. Some people don't feel guilty. Well, (laughs) whether you feel it or not, you are guilty. We're all guilty. We've all sinned, all of us, and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, the teaching associated with the Reformation and with Luther, which is called justification, deals with the problem of guilt. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that is the doctrine that we associate with the Protestant Reformation and with Luther. By grace alone means that God did not have to do this. But he did it. He was not obligated to. Through faith alone means that this gift of justification, this gift of righteousness, is freely given and faith is the hand that reaches out and takes it. My friends, when someone offers you a gift, you don't get out your wallet. You put out your hand, you take it, and you say, thank you. When we come here on a Sunday to worship and praise, we are saying thank you. It's the appropriate response to the gift that God has given us. We further show our thanks to God by entering into something called obedience or good works, which are not to earn anything from him, but it's just our way of saying thank you. It's appropriate to thank And grace means that we don't earn, we receive. Grace doesn't mean there's no effort involved in the Christian life. It just means there's no earning. So it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and it's in Christ alone. It's in Christ alone. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Now, Some will say there are many ways. No, there are not many ways. It's in Christ alone that my hope is found. Jesus said that. And you can argue with him if you want, but you won't get very far. It's just the way it is. It's justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And by the way, that word alone is very, very important. Well, as Paul said, and as we read earlier, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Once again, I point out to you that in one verse of scripture, Paul says the same thing three times. Luther had to study this. Luther had to preach this. And Luther knew this was the answer. It's so significant. It's so important. Here's how it works. How may a person become right with God? The answer, by believing in Jesus. That means having faith in Jesus. That, of course, means believing in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Person and his work. But that sounds so simple. Well, it is simple. It's not complicated. It's so simple a child can believe. Those of you in here that are young today, you can believe it that Christ died for your sins. Christ died for my sins. Christ rose from the dead. Very simple. But that doesn't mean it's cheap. No, it's not cheap. As a matter of fact, the cost was astronomical it cost the father his son god loved the world so much that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life so it cost the father astronomical it cost the son it cost him his life he had to die an agonizing death on the cross and he had not done anything wrong he saw, he died you see for our sins he died in our place as our substitute. He died the death and endured the punishment that I deserve, that you deserved. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was our substitute. So it cost him greatly. And this is what we call the gospel. The good news that Christ died on the cross for our sins and that Christ rose from the dead for our justification. Romans 4 25. So the good news is that when we believe this simple message when we just believe this simple message, when we reach out and take it by faith, we are justified before God. And that means that we are declared by God to be right in His sight. We are okay with Him. We are right with Him. We are accepted by him this simple and profound truth that luther rediscovered the just shall live by faith turned out to be the very foundation of the protestant reformation it's why we're not roman catholics here today saying the mass in latin because luther found this very simple no 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 it's not My gift to God of my good works, it's God's gift to me, a gift in his son. Now, how does this doctrine of justification, this teaching, how does it fit in with the gospel? How does it relate to it? Well, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, protects the gospel. It protects the gospel. What do I mean by that? You see, we are so inclined by nature to want to justify ourselves by the things that we do, how religious we are, how much we pray, how much we read the Bible, serve others. We are so inclined to want to justify ourselves by our works that we think in those terms of this is what makes me right with God. That's our inclination. And there's nothing wrong with doing those things. We ought to do them But they are getting the cart before the horse. When we make those things the basis of our acceptance, the ground of our justification, we undercut the gospel. And it's basically like this. We try to smuggle our good works into the gospel. And then we go to God and say, look, God, at the wonderful things I've done. Please accept me. And he says, was not the sacrifice of my son sufficient? Do you despise the blood of the son of God to the extent that you think you have got to somehow add to it to make yourself acceptable? That, my friends, is an insult. Now this is so simple and so gracious and so very important that our dear friend Paul said in Romans 3:23 and 24 he said for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God doesn't end the sentence he goes on to say and are justified freely by his grace as a gift and it is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus through the redemptive work the cross work of Jesus Christ the redemption is in Christ the justification is free it's a gift of grace it can't be earned so i love the doctrine Of justification. I love the doctrine of justification because I love the gospel. And I love the gospel because I love Jesus. And I love Jesus because he first loved me. You see, you'll have people that will say things like, well, you know, uh, it's a relationship with a person. I totally get that. I totally believe that. And we don't have to, all this doctrine, it just confuses and divides people. No, no. The doctrine of justification is extremely important because it protects the gospel. It protects that relationship you have with Jesus from you trying to somehow lean on, not the everlasting arms, but on your own arms of strength. And that won't work. That won't work. As a matter of fact, that's one of the reasons why Christians Christians are often so weak. They're not relying on Christ and His righteousness. They're relying on their own, and they're, that that kind of stuff is going to run out after a while, and you're left with nothing. So you know you have to learn this. Uh, Luther, by the way, it, this, this this doesn't come naturally. This this righteousness, this gift of righteousness, this gift of justification, it is a foreign, an alien righteousness. It's given to us by someone outside of us. God, we don't have it inherently. I have it, but I only have it because he gave it to me. Now, he won't take it away. It's always going to be there. But I had to learn this and study this so that if in the middle of the night you stood me on the head and threatened my life, I would still say that I'm saved, I'm justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Luther said of it, we must beat it into their heads this doctrine of just we much that's what i'm trying to do right now I'm trying to beat it into your head because by nature we're always going to revert back to well have i have i done well today did i read my bible oh i didn't read my bible today no wonder i'm missing god doesn't stop loving you if you miss reading your but now you should read your bible i highly recommend it but that's not the basis upon which you're justified all right okay i love the doctrine of justification this is what Luther rediscovered the message of the gospel protected by the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Now just one more word here uh, in in conclusion. We call this the Protestant Reformation uh, and you've heard that phrase I'm sure but have you ever considered that word Protestant? It is an adjective that modifies reformation um it's also a noun, and it describes a Christian in the West who is neither a Roman Catholic or uh, an Eastern Orthodox. Uh, I, I identify with Protestant Reformation. Uh, I am a Protestant. But the word itself, have you ever thought about the word itself? Originally, this was a protest movement. Protestant. It was a protest against certain abuses and errors in Roman Catholicism. It seems today that everybody is protesting something. Everybody's a victim and everybody's protesting. Now, I am not against protesting. It's built into the Bill of Rights, and I'm glad it is and there's a place for it. But as an old man, I want to tell you, I get a little weary Of all the protests. And I want to make it clear today. I'm not angry. I'm not protesting anything. I'm recommending. I'm advocating. I'm proclaiming. I'm preaching. The gospel of grace. It's a good thing. I'm happy. I'm a happy old bald guy. My next stop is heaven. And on the way there, I intend to do as much good as I can. And this is a word of reconciliation. I'm speaking to you as an ambassador of Christ. I'm urging you, if you're not already, to be reconciled to God. Because He's taken the first step towards you already by sending His Son to die in your place. Yes, God is holy. And sin must be reckoned with. But He reckoned with it in His Son. And God is also love and he loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. In Christ, God was reconciling the world unto himself, not counting our trespasses against us. So today, my friends, if you hear his voice, believe the gospel, be reconciled to God, you will never regret it. And for those of you here who are Christians, I want to recommend to you. Study and learn the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It will give stability to your soul like nothing else. Because there are times... And I know your church is going through one right right now where there's, there's struggles, there can be instability. What this church needs is men and women who are so sure that God has saved them through the death of Jesus Christ and will never be moved by that. And from that position of strength and courage and confidence in what he's done, we can relate in love to one another. Amen. Let us love one another. We can love one another if we know we're loved by God. And we can know we're loved by God if we believe the gospel. And if we don't try to smuggle in our good works to make us acceptable to him, but simply rely on the shed blood of Jesus Christ, justification will have a stabilizing effect on the Christian church, on every individual Christian. So allow me again, my friends, to beat it into your heads. I've tried to beat it into my head. You are justified by, say it with me, grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Let's pray. Amen. Amen. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. Heavenly Father, since this is the wonderful truth that protects The gospel, the wonderful love that you've shown for us in sending your son to die for our sins. I pray that all of my friends here at Living Hope Church in Frederick will trust in you with all of their hearts, accept, receive, be strengthened, and stabilized by the wonderful acceptance that you have offered us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For your glory, Lord, let this church shine forth with the light of the gospel, in Jesus' name, amen.